Hey guys, welcome back to Mountain Murders. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan. How's it going? Just hanging and kicking it. Missed you on our last episode. I had to bring in our daughter Bella. Yeah, because I To talk about Krampus. I've been stuck at work. I know. We put out a little mini episode. It was about Krampus, paganism, some of the origins of what we celebrate now, like as Christmas, but how it's rooted in a lot of like pagan activity and ritual. Yeah, a lot of that's very interesting, the symbolism and such. It was a short episode, but I think it was interesting. Maybe give folks a little something to listen to on the drive to work, maybe while they're on the treadmill. Yeah, and they'll have some uh, interesting little facts to drop here at the Yule time. Yeah, exactly. But it's good to have you back. Yeah, I'm back. I'm glad you have a a quick few minutes to sit down and record the podcast with me. Yeah, and and you have a really interesting story. I think it's very interesting. I mean, this is definitely a fascinating Appalachian true crime story for sure. That's what we do. Let's give a shout out to Karen. She's our brand new patron. Thanks, Karen. You can join us on Patreon for as low as, what, a dollar a month is our lowest level. Yeah, you can literally find find it in your couch. You're going to get all kinds of bonus material, extra episodes. Yes, we uh, do a lot of cool stuff over there on Patreon. And moving into the new year, we have some ideas to make Patreon even better. Yes, it keeps growing and changing. Yeah. I also want to give a shout out to our friends at Marriage is a Scream podcast. They've given us a couple of shout outs. I have to say I've, I've given them a listen. They're a paranormal podcast. They discuss haunted houses, true crime, urban legends. As we know, couples that podcast together yeah. are awesome. Yes, I'm going to listen to them tonight so when I go back to work. Couple, they podcast and they've got some interesting stuff. So if you are trying to find a good podcast, I'm going to recommend Marriage is a Scream. Wow, I'm going to try them out. Yeah, definitely. Sounds really cool. Are you ready to get started, Dylan? I am. Let's dive in head first. Okay. We're going to be talking uh, about a case that takes place in Shepherdsville, Kentucky. That sounds like a really awesome little town. A small community in a remote area, much like where we live, generations of the same families okay. living there for hundreds of years. Yeah, those uh, typically uh, end up with a really tight you know, community where people help each other and everyone knows everybody. Well, where we live, we've seen a lot of that, but now we're getting influx of, you know, different people from outside moving in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that happens. Yeah, it does. So our dynamic here has changed a bit, but the town I grew up in was very much the same families, including mine. My family been here for 200 plus years. Everybody knows everybody. Which is good and bad, because then everybody knows your business. They're all up in your beeswax. But everybody knows your business, so when you need help, people are there to lend a helping hand. Yeah, that's a true definition of community, I think, when they rally around each other. And this is one of those rural, tight-knit communities. Jessica Dawn Dyson was born to a teenage mother. Edna was only 17 when her daughter was born. Jessica was a good girl who enjoyed going hunting with her dad. She was a big sister to two little brothers, Christopher and Bubs. But uh, I think his real name was Michael, both which she was fiercely protective of. All right, big sis. Loving, very protective of the little brothers. And she was a student at Bullet Central High School. Oh, wow. I bet they had an awesome mascot. Our story takes place in Bullet County, Kentucky. So Bullet Central High School. Jessica was also a hard worker who bought a red Pontiac car with money she had earned while working at the local fast food chain Hardee's. Jessica aspired to study culinary arts, often cooking for her family. Later, her little brother would say she would make meals for the family, was always cooking for everybody, even if it wasn't that great. 
Oh, but she's trying. <laughs> she's learning. <laughs> that, you know, they would they would eat her food even if they didn't like it. Huh. They were just trying to make her feel better. Well, that's sweet. And she was passionate about food. Yeah, you can't. Hey, if you, that's what I tell mine when I try to teach them how to cook. If you if you don't mess it up, you're not trying. <laughs> Is that so? Yeah. I love cooking. You enjoy cooking. Oh, yeah, but you're not just a good cook instantly. No, it's something that you have to learn. Yes, ma'am. How to do. On September 10th, 1999. Oh, okay. So this story takes place a while ago. Yeah, but still fairly recent. Jessica disappeared from her bed. Her family had gone about their usual routines, allowing the 16-year-old girl to sleep in a bit. Her mom usually got up around 5.30 a.m., got ready, went into work. Her father woke up, was getting ready for work. He would usually get the two younger kids up. They would catch the school bus. He would head off to work as well. Jessica would typically wake up maybe around 6.30 or so to get ready for school. She was driving. She'd see herself off to the local high school with her own car. She didn't take a bus. She was kind of on her own in the mornings. Her mother had gone grocery shopping after work, and when she returns home, she finds the house empty. However, Jessica's car is parked in the driveway, and her mother finds that to be unusual. Yeah, because they got their usual schedule, and everybody's off, and she works, school. This is around 1.30 p.m. Edna calls her husband to ask if he'd happened to give Jessica a ride to school, he says no, and then Edna asks if the car is working. You know, is it running? Is everything okay with the car? Because she's baffled that it's still in the driveway. Her mom takes a key upon, you know, her husband suggests, well, why don't you go start it up and see? Like, maybe it won't crank and we'll know. Maybe she got a ride with a friend. Yeah. I mean, he's trying to come up with a reason why the car is there. So mom takes the key out, opens the car door. She is alarmed when she discovers Jessica's purse, one shoe, her work clothes, school backpack, and her cell phone. Oh, my God. In the front passenger seat of the vehicle. When mom picks up the cell phone and flips it open, it's one of those old school flip phones, 9-1 has been entered into the phone. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, so now she's totally freaked out. That would, who, that would freak anyone out. She is very freaked out. So when Mike comes home, Edna tells her husband that something is wrong. The cell phone with the 9-1 makes them believe their daughter is in trouble. Obviously. How could it not? Now, Edna freaking out. I mean, I, we as parents, we know what she had to be feeling. Oh, I'm going to tell you right now. We have two teenage daughters. And I have an older daughter. If I find their phone and they're not in the house with it, I would freak out, let alone all that. Edna calls the school and learns that her daughter was absent. They phone Jessica's friends, her job, but no one has seen nor heard from the girl. She and her husband go to the sheriff's department to file a report, but are told by deputies that she's probably a runaway. That shit right there. I mean, I know kids run away, but that happens over and over in these stories. And they're losing critical moments and hours. Exactly. And that will come into play. Mike explains that his daughter is not the type of kid who would run away, especially without taking her cell phone. Her purse. Or her purse. Yeah. Which most ladies know that's the one thing you take with you when you leave the house. Or her other shoe. I mean, what the exactly. hell? Exactly. Plus, her car is left behind. I just don't... Now, it, this is a car. This girl has worked a long time to save money and buy this car. This car is like her pride and joy. Yeah, of course. This red Pontiac. She's not going to just run away and leave her car in the driveway. Yeah, you're going to take your drive yourself somewhere. I mean, if you go up to a, any kind of a cop, a cop, a you know, decent cop, 
and explain this very scenario and for them to say, well, we'll probably run away. I mean, come on. Are you kidding me? Law enforcement sent the family home and told them that if Jessica didn't return by the next morning, they could come back to the station. All right. The Dyshans were incredibly worried. Their daughter was missing and no one was offering help. A deputy named David Greenwell did come to the Dyshan home and he felt the scene was alarming. He alerted a senior officer about the situation. The guy twice refused to come out to the Dyshan home saying that she was probably just a runaway and he wasn't going to get involved. They I, had to wait till the next day. Oh, yeah. Gosh, I guess they did. They must have had. They must get runaways all the time because they always think that way. So I don't know. The next morning after Jessica's disappearance, the Dyshans explained that their daughter had not returned home yet to law enforcement. A few officers were dispatched again to the house. Jessica's car was searched by these two officers, but without gloves. So they're messing the scene. They're contaminating the scene. They didn't take any fingerprints from the vehicle. They're just kind of poking around inside. Then they drive back to Shepherdsville, leaving the Dyshan family with questions. Wow. During this time, the Dyson family makes a few television appearances pleading for information or the safe return of their daughter. I'd be sick. But no one seems to know where the girl is. The community begins a search effort. Mike's brother, Stanley, suggested that Jessica's body might be in the river bottoms. Locals knew that if anything shady or sinister had happened, it usually happened in this area of town. Okay. This is where... Like, all the bad things happen. Right. Yes. So, although it was difficult for the family, they knew they had to search for Jessica. As a family member, you know, you don't want to be the one that finds your kid, but you know you've got to be out there searching. Well, yeah, I think uh, once once that settles in that they are they really are gone and you don't know where they're at, I think there's like this inherent need to just find them, even if it is their body. Just to be doing something. Just to be trying. To be occupied. Yes, because, because I mean, you'd I think go, if you just sit there with your thoughts. I'd go crazy. You would. Well, during the search, Stanley, Jessica's uncle, gets really sick and has to be taken home. Like he just starts throwing up, not feeling well. So they got to get him out of there. Relatives, neighbors, and friends comb the area kind of surrounding the Dyson's home hoping to find a clue leading to Jessica. The search proves fruitless. Jessica is still missing. A few days after Jessica's disappearance, her family had come in from searching one afternoon. Chris Dyson, Jessica's younger brother, goes outside to feed the dogs when he runs in the home and tells the parents he thinks he hears Jessica screaming, help me. Wow, geez. Mike, her dad, I mean, he is just freaking out. He grabs a gun, rushes outside to see if he could help find his daughter. Just as he's running out with this gun and his younger son, Stanley, his brother, is standing in the driveway having just pulled up in his vehicle. Mike, Stanley, and Chris climb up a hill leading up to the neighbor's property where they see someone burning what looks to be like a pile of clothes. Oh, that's weird. The Dyson and Brooks property kind of adjoins. Bucky Brooks, the neighbor, refused to allow Mike to search his family's farm. During this entire search for Jessica, when the entire community is out trying to help, the Brooks were the only members unwilling to have their land searched. Okay, well that's a red flag, it seems. So as they approach, they see Bucky with what looks to be like this 
burn pile with some clothes or something in it. Of course, Mike's got a gun. Bucky's like, oh, don't shoot me. You know, I'm just up here burning some stuff. Just burning some clothes. Immediately, Mike phones the police. Police ask what Jessica was wearing when she disappeared, which was like a pair of pink shorts. That was the last thing they'd seen her, and that's what she had been sleeping in the night before. They bring out some canines to search the property, including Bucky Brooks' field, his barn, and garage. Now, during the barn search, Bucky was acting very strangely. And his name's Bucky. The cadaver dogs (laughs) immediately went over to the fire pit on the property. Officers find two pair of jersey gloves, both showing a scent of, like, decomposing body. Oh, wow. And the dogs are immediately, you know, finding these gloves. Yeah. Tipping these officers off that this is an unusual thing. Yeah. They didn't arrest this Brooks guy initially. Mike Dyshawn contacted the FBI and he invited them to assist with the case. Apparently, if local law enforcement doesn't bring on the FBI, they won't come out and help. But if you're a family member and you contact them, they will assist. I did not know that. Because you're like inviting them to assist. Yeah, that's what they always need an opening to come in. So the FBI went to Jessica's room. When they arrive, they took some evidence, looked for fingerprints. Eventually, they combed Jessica's car for forensics, actually taking the car into their possession. Oh, yeah. You know they're going to test it out all kinds of ways. The FBI brought in a helicopter to search the area. Another search was performed on the Brooks Farm. A picture of Jessica was found in the Brooks barn. Bucky Brooks becomes the prime suspect, but law enforcement still does not know the location of Jessica. We're talking, this is some days passing. 17 days after Jessica had gone missing, a woman was driving through the area known as the River Bottoms. She saw something propped up against a tree in the distance, believing it is a body she calls police. FBI and their forensic team show up on the scene to find this badly decomposed body. Oh, my God. The body is missing a limb. It was not specific about what limb. It just said a limb. And several fingers are missing. Ugh. It appeared to be the body of Jessica. Mike says there's no way he can go identify the body. He's like, I cannot go. If this is my daughter, I can't can't see her like this. Uh, So Edna goes to identify her daughter's body. Her face was almost unrecognizable. But her mom is able to identify Jessica by a butterfly tattoo. I just, having that image seared in your brain as the last image of your child, I I don't know. I don't know if I could live with that. The medical examiner determines the cause of death to be strangulation. She has a broken jaw, several fingers had been cut off, and the medical examiner believes she was kept alive for about three days without food and water. Whomever had taken Jessica had tortured the girl. She had also been violently sexually assaulted. Because as I mentioned, she had three missing fingers, but they believed it wasn't like some animal had come, you know, and removed the fingers. They knew that whoever had taken the girl had cut her, had basically cut her fingers off. Yeah, that would be hard to tell. I mean, if it's either clean cut off or chewed off. Yeah. The body had most likely been moved about 15 feet to where it was visible from the road, and they believed this had happened within 18 hours of discovery. The body had probably been, they estimated, about 15 feet away and been moved. I wonder why someone would do that. Investigators believe this was a clue that someone wanted the girl's body found. 
Jessica is found only about seven miles away from the family's home and only about 90 feet from Greenwell Ford Road. The family takes the news incredibly hard and blames local law enforcement for not taking the initial complaint very seriously. Bucky Brooks becomes a prime suspect. Now, he tells police he had seen her walking down the road on the morning she disappeared, but later recants and says he was having sex with his wife at that time. Okay. So he doesn't know where she was and he didn't see her. Oh, yeah, I forgot I was having sex with my wife. Who even looks at what time they're having sex with their wife anyway? Irene Brooks says she was not having sex with her husband. And Brooks just can't keep his story straight. It continues changing with police thinking he's guilty. Can't keep his story straight. He tells them several different things. None of it's checking out. A polygraph is given to Brooks, though inadmissible. They give him the polygraph anyway, and he fails. Yeah, so um, they've got the... Decomposition, smells, hits by the dogs on his property, burning clothes, her picture found in the barn, all this stuff. But I still see why they're waiting because if you once you charge someone with something, you know, and, and it doesn't stick, you can't ever charge them even with that again. So the FBI hands over the information to the state's attorney's office, who put the indictment like before a grand jury. Brooks is charged with murder in 2001 and is facing the death penalty. Well, whoever killed that poor girl should get the death penalty. Brooks said things during the interrogation like, well, if you find my fingerprints on or near the body, I guess I just have to admit to it. All right. That's that's what an innocent man says. Now, during the trial, James Coulter becomes another person of interest. Brooks' defense team brought Coulter in to testify. This guy Coulter admitted that he had seen Jessica the night before her disappearance His relationship with Jessica was as her drug dealer. He had sold her drugs the night before she went missing. Oh, does it say what kind of drugs? No. Okay. I'm not sure what kind of drugs. All right, but that doesn't mean he's a bad person. So the defense team is trying to paint this guy as the suspect. You know, they want their guy to be found innocent. Yeah, all they they need is that one juror who thinks it might be someone else. That's not a bad uh, bad route for them to go. Yeah, so they're trying to point fingers at this guy, James Coulter. The investigation, I mean, it was just like totally botched. And the court ends up ruling it a mistrial. Because one of the officers who takes a stand says, well, that guy failed a polygraph. Ah, come on, dude. Inadmissible court completely botches the whole case. The evidence has been botched. The investigation the was botched from the, the trial. Oh my God, these people. The sheriff's office had placed crucial evidence like body parts that needed to be in a temperature controlled setting in a storage building where it had not been kept frozen. <sighs> Gee, I, I'm sorry. I, this is this is a very inadequate law, you let's know, talk about, Let's just give it the name. It's a fucking shit show. It's a shit show. It's like, where did these people take policing? Yeah, where, it, oh my God. From like a correspondence school taught by like a first grader? I don't know. I mean, how would you not keep body parts in a refrigerated? Yeah, I mean, this whole thing is just fucked from the beginning. Brooks was eventually released. The Dyshans confronted the judge in open court. I mean, they're like, our daughter is getting no justice. They're very upset. The Dyshans were handed over the remaining case information and evidence. Really? Yeah, like the prosecution gives them a big box like that here, has here's all the stuff. everything in it. 
Damn it. Oh, they must have learned all this from the Waynesville Police Department. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to anybody who works for the Waynesville Police Department. Oh, we, we offend people. We don't care. <laughs> Jessica's case goes cold. And the family, the whole time, I mean, they're feeling there's no justice for their daughter. In the end, it just basically tears this family apart. Yeah, it, that that's very common as well. They sink into deep depression. The they wh- have no answers. The what Mike ifs. and Edna can't take the pressure and their marriage dissolves. That's very common, unfortunately. From my understanding to this day, they still don't speak to each other. That's so sad. A cold case detective named Hunt is brought in by the sheriff's office to work on five cold cases in this county. Some other cases they fucked up. The notoriety of Jessica's case made this female detective, which, by the way, Detective Hunt, female detective. Okay. So I'm thinking, okay, maybe that perspective is going to help a little bit, right? She chooses it as her first priority. She finds very little information once she starts digging through the files. I guess so. And has to start fresh. Jessica's parents had the evidence from Bucky's trial, which they handed over gladly. They're just trying to get some resolution. It's probably a good thing they had it or it'd be gone. So while she's trying to solve this case, she finds that the defense attorneys had much more information than the police. Okay. The defense had hired a private detective on Bucky Brooks' behalf. In the information, she finds that Bucky Brooks had the IQ of 61. And with such a low IQ, that polygraph should have never been administered. Okay. Because he was not even of, like, a mental capacity to be able to take the polygraph. And the fact that he had been giving, like, conflicting stories to officers... Okay. ...was because he had such a low IQ. All right. Well, I mean, okay, there's that. Which kind of blows the top off this theory that he's the guilty party. What about the dogs hitting on the decomposition smell? Well, there was a lot of circumstantial evidence during the trial. And then, of course, the James Coulter guy that was put as a witness and they're trying to paint it as though he's the guilty guy. The drug dealer. Yeah. He was never followed up on as a witness or even a person of interest. Cops never even took the time to interrogate this guy, question him. That doesn't surprise me because they bungled it from the beginning and in some very significant ways all the way through the trial of Bucky. And and these goober cops are just like, well, it's probably that guy. Yeah, I can see them just totally screwing that up. Coulter claimed he was in a motel room with a female on the morning Jessica went missing. A maintenance worker, years later, still employed at the motel, remembered seeing James Coulter and his girlfriend at the motel till around noon when they checked out. Jeez, he must be a nosy old dude. Well, this guy Coulter had quite a reputation in this town. Ah, so he's like, oh, there's that shit bird. Probably. Okay. It was not until June of 2013 that Detective Hunt gets a break in the case. An informant in Oldham County had told a detective that he knew who killed Jessica Dyson. An inmate placed in a cell with this informant, and both of them had been charged with having sex with children, by the way. The informant says the person claimed he had Jessica for several days, and then he took her life. He mutilated Jessica's body to make it look like a drug dealer or a cartel had murdered her. (laughs) Jesus. This guy was angry because Jessica was having a relationship with a boy her own age, and Jessica's murder was out of sheer jealousy. The person who allegedly killed Jessica Dyson was her uncle, Stanley Dyson. What the hell? Are you kidding me? And this informant knew details that had not been released to the public. Oh, shit. So Detective Hunt is taking this 
seriously. In the beginning, she was like an informant. Mm. Yeah, jail cell confession. She wasn't really feeling it. She's like, these are typically fairly unreliable. But once details started to emerge, like the person had held her for several days, had tortured her, had mutilated the body. I mean, these were not details that had been released to the public. Oh, wow. She's like, this is fairly credible, it seems. She starts looking into the uncle. The story is that Jessica had been taken to this nearby barn where she was raped and tortured. Her personal items were buried underneath a fallen tree in the area near this barn or building where she had been taken. Ooh, I wonder if it's still there. Detective Hunt goes out. She starts digging probably 175 holes in the ground. Just randomly Trying in this to find, area. like, kind of near the area where the body had been found, thinking she's going to be able to find some kind of clue. Jessica's brother is helping her do this. Well, as they're leaving the scene, it's pouring rain. They've been digging all day for hours and hours, trying to find something. They're driving by this old, kind of abandoned area, and Jessica's brother points out that that's a building and a barn where teenagers used to party. Uh-oh. The detective swings in there. They go into this, like, barn type of area, and they start looking around. It's really dark in there. The roof has started to kind of cave in, so really kind of the only light that's coming in is from the caved-in, you know, ceiling of this barn. And it's raining. They're kind of looking around, and she finds a piece of material lying on the ground, and there's a few things kind of on top of it, just trash. It is a fitted sheet from Jessica's bed. Oh, my God. The sheet matches the comforter. The detective drives to the Dyson's house. She's got this sheet. It matches the comforter. She knew she had seen the pattern before. She lifts up the comforter, and it is a missing sheet. This bed, Jessica's bed, had not been touched since the September 10th, 1999 day that the girl had gone missing. You're kidding me. Her parents had left her room absolutely untouched other than investigators having kind of come in to yeah, perform their Yeah, but they didn't search. clear it out and change the room or no, anything. No, they didn't do anything it's to like this room. It's like a shrine. That's common. They left common. it the same way it was the day their daughter went missing. Wow, and this is quite a bit uh, quite a time, bit of time later, right? Uh, this is like 14 years later. 14 years? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Wow. So it turns out this sheet was missing from Jessica's bed, had not been touched since the initial investigation. That is crazy right there. So let's talk a little bit about Stanley Dyson. He's a drifter type. He's Mike's brother. He had lived on and off for several years with the Dyson family. He had jumped from siblings' homes, basically from brother to sister, back and forth, just living with relatives over the years, and in the wake, abusing many of their children. What the God Almighty. Stanley is a pedophile who had molested several relatives, including Jessica. Stanley had lived in Mike's home from 1989 to 1996. Several victims had started being raped as early as six years old. Including Jessica, Stanley had molested about four other victims. What? How did... Oh my God, why do you enable this guy to bounce around? And he probably just seems like a dirtbag, I'm going to guess, if he's damn uh, molesting kids his own family well i think initially the relatives were not aware well yeah i know but this was happening i just got i bet he's got molester energy though for real stanley knew what time mike and edna went to work what time the younger kids would get on the school bus he lived in the home for some years stanley went to confront jessica 
about having a new boyfriend. Jessica had threatened Stanley that if he didn't leave her alone, she was going to tell everyone that he had been raping and sodomizing her since she was a little girl. My God. Stanley knew if Jessica told on him, his brother Mike would likely kill him. Good. That's when he took Jessica to the barn where he held her for three days. He tortured her, including mutilating her body, raping her, and eventually strangling the young girl. So, yeah, now he's like, well, I'm going to kill her, but I'm still going to do my crazy, insane stuff to her, like, full-blown. Like, probably stuff he's fantasized about, the freaking weirdo. Now, initially, Mike couldn't accept that his brother would have killed his child. Well, yeah, he's been letting this guy live with him. But as more evidence piles up, Mike finally knew it was true and asked for the death penalty. Yeah. Stanley admitted his guilt. So, in addition to the murder of Jessica, Stanley Dyson was also convicted of molesting five relatives between 1973 and 2002. That's so disgusting. So, for fucking decades, He's this guy was molesting children. Over and over. And relatives. Over and over. Ruining their lives. Traumatizing them. In 2015, 56-year-old Stanley Dyson accepted a plea deal that pronounced him guilty of manslaughter in the death of his niece, Jessica Dyson. The deal says Dyson will serve 20 years in prison without an opportunity to appeal his sentence. What the fuck? Dyson accepted an Alfred plea that oh reduced the original first-degree murder charge. And if you're not familiar in an Alfred plea, the defendant does not admit guilt, but recognizes there's enough evidence for conviction. And, and, yeah, and that in itself seems like a, a, a freaking oxymoron to me. The deal also included charges of incest, rape, and sodomy in four other cases, all scheduled to go to trial in 2015. Jesus Christ. How in the hell did they let that man get away with an Alfred plea? The kidnapping charge in Jessica's case was also dismissed. This man has been molesting his own relatives for decades. Literally decades. Ruining them, traumatizing them over and over and over again. Then took his own niece and murdered her, and mutilated, tortured her. And they, why are we offering this man a plea? I mean, I get it. In some cases, I see, sometimes I don't understand. That just blows my mind. Detective Hunt had said that when she went to talk to one of the relatives who had been molested, that the victim, basically, when she mentioned what had happened, the victim just fell out, like fainted. Yeah. And was like so distraught by it, she didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, because she's, she's been totally destroyed by this her entire, you know, who knows how, when it started. Uh, okay, we just need to fix this law. And when they get someone who's done this to people's kids and their family, the law should be, we bring that person after it's all over in the trial or whatever, we bring that person to you in this damn area, this building made for this, where there's like fucking Teresa wep, you know, where they kill people and tort and you get to do whatever you want to that person. That should be the damn law. We get to cut them up, torture them, do whatever we want. And maybe people stop fucking with kids. Were we in Mother Russia? <laughs> I, I want to live in this country because you and me talk about it all the time. We don't protect the children or the women in this country or the elderly for that matter. No, we you don't. can rape and molest and, and but boy, I can get caught with some damn or get sell drugs to a willing person or any of that and go away forever. Get caught with an ounce of weed. Get caught with an ounce of weed. That's your <laughs> ass. But you can, it is so hard. And that's why they did that plea. I'm going to get in some form. It's so hard to get this stuff to stick because of the way the laws are arranged and the language and all the gray areas. And they're that way for a reason. I won't even get into that. Maybe we'll talk about that on Patreon because I believe the whole system 
promotes this to a degree. We have conspiracy theories. Well, that the, the oh, highest levels of oh, government are oh. involved in pedophilia rings. Yes, yes, we do. Because nowhere, the whole world does not band together. And I feel like one thing we could all agree on: all governments, all cultures, is protect kids, protect the women, and it just doesn't happen. No, it doesn't. That's because the people who craft the damn laws don't want it to happen. They're disgusting people. But anyway, this this I'm sorry, I'm getting kind of off track here, but it's so pissed off. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty disheartening. I think there were a lot of elements that went into that. They definitely wanted to get this guy. It had been so long. That detective was a badass. Since Jessica's murder. Detective Hunt. And it had become a cold case. Yes. And I think they really wanted some some kind of resolution for this Right. And, that, and that's true. And they worked very hard. And Detective Hunt, she is a badass. They likely didn't want to have to bring the victims in to no, testify and that, that's a big guy. part of it's it. Very hard, very that's traumatic a big part for of it. victims of sexual abuse. A lot have of to times, get on stand in open court, be discredited. I mean, and so I think they felt like this was probably their best chance. Yes, I just want to kill these people. That's the kind I would kill these people. I would, I would, I have no problem You'd killing. Be like this would be your Dexter, yes, kind of moment. Children molesters and people who. Violently abuse women, I would I would kill them and I would enjoy it. I'm not <laughs> kidding. Okay, well maybe this is not the forum to be discussing that. Well, I'm not going to get the opportunity to do that, but <laughs> I think we all should. Well, I'm just really happy that this family finally gets some closure. Yes, this is a long. This is what 16 years. That's very important that they do get closure and they get. And it I mean. They ruin their lives. They know what this happened. Ha happily married couple yeah. loses their daughter. With they end up family. divorced. I mean, it tears this family apart. It's horrible. And they do get some answers. I mean, they finally get answers as to what and why is disgusting as it is. And I just feel so bad for them. I do. And I'm angry with this police department. Oh, Jesus. They who they could have found her alive. Who knows? Probably. If they'd hit the damn ground running when mom comes down there and says, I found one shoe her telephone, her car she loves, she's a she's a young a teenager, and her purse. She's not at school. She's very responsible. She works, goes to school. I mean, what the hell? How do you look at someone's oh, they probably just ran away with one shoe, don't have their purse, their car, their money, their phone. Yeah, oh. this is some fucking like Barney Fife police. Oh, let me go, let me go. Oh, here, so the car's town. look, it looks like the car might be the scene where she was taken from because there's one fucking shoe in there. Let me go poke around in it and touch everything. Well, what it boils down to, in my opinion, is a lot of these small town cops are not, um, I guess, educated or trained. They're not properly to deal trained. With this. They're not. And then they're too fucking lazy. Because they're to lazy. me, this sounds like laziness. That's what that whole, oh, they're runaway, they might come back. Because they don't want to be troubled with it. They don't want to deal with it. No, they want to go park around the corner and pull everybody over that goes by because they're bored to death. Oh, somebody's speeding or got a dead tag. Oh, yeah, look <laughs> at that. Oh, you're trying to get to work or go pick your daughter up from school? Oh, oh fucking assholes. <laughs> well, that has been the case of Jessica Dyson. I'm going to have to go hit a punching bag. I see that. You're pretty riled up. Yeah, I am. Well, let's not forget to tell our Mountain Murders listeners about our live show coming up in January. January the 18th, to be exact, at Fleetwoods in Asheville, North Carolina. We do have tickets on sale now. Yeah. We've sold some tickets. Getting kind of excited. better get yours while they last. Yes, it's not a huge venue. It's our first show. I'm nervous. Heather's better at this stuff. She's performed in front of people in various um, iterations of herself, <laughs> if that's the right word. And uh, But yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, I think it's going to be really fun. If you want to check out the event on Facebook, go to our Mountain Murders page, find the event, 
There's also a link for the tickets in that event. Or you can go find brownpapertickets.com on the internets and do a keyword search of Mountain Murders and it should pop up the link to get the tickets there. $10 online, $12 the day of the show. I'm excited. It's going to be great. I can't wait. And again, if you want to sign up on Patreon, our lowest level, only a dollar a month. Woo-woo! going to get lots of extra content there and moving into the new year. We have some great ideas of things that we're going to do to expand Patreon. Yes. For those extra special folks who support us over there. Yes. Yes. A lot of exciting things to come. All right. Well, you guys have a great weekend and we'll be back with more 12 downloads of Christmas.